Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's been more than a year since Hurricane Maria devastated Puerto Rico. How did that September 2017 storm and the one previous, known as Irma, impact the island's watersheds and coastal ecosystems? We'll hear more from a University of New Hampshire researcher that's coming up. If you've been following the coverage of Puerto Rico post-Maria, you know National Public Radio and WNPR have dedicated resources to cover the story beyond the impact of those first few weeks after the storm made landfall. How's the island faring today? Adrian Florido, a reporter for NPR, joins us now to talk about the stories he's uncovered and the state of the island today. Adrian, welcome to our show. Oh, thank you. Uh, could you walk us through how you first ended up uh, reporting from Puerto Rico? I understand it was technically a short-term assignment? Right. Well, after the hurricane, NPR sent um, a lot of reporters to, to Puerto Rico. And I was uh, one of the reporters who came in on the second or third uh, wave. So it was about two and a half weeks after the storm in the immediate aftermath. And I was here for about two weeks and then and returned to D.C., where I was based at the time. Uh, and it was toward the end of November that um, the editor of the National Desk uh, came to me and asked if I would be interested in moving to Puerto Rico for an extended assignment. Um, and that is how um, we find ourselves in December of 2018, and I'm still here. Uh, so uh, your assignment was extended. So beyond, you know, when a, a disaster strikes and there are the, the typical stories that reporters from around uh, our country are reporting on, how did your uh, focus change as you got that six-month extension? Well, you know, the first six months of, of the recovery here, a lot of that time was about when the power was going to come back because it took, you know, if you remember, almost... Uh, it took almost 11 months for the power to come back to, to most of the island. And so, you know, those first six months were sort of the immediate sort of emergency phase of the recovery, which was getting people their electricity back, patching up their roofs, making sure that people had water. And all of those things took a really long time. And so that was a lot of the reporting in the early days. More recently, in the last several months, the recovery phase has shifted to a longer term sort of reconstruction and rebuilding phase. While there are still people who don't have roofs and, and, and small numbers who don't have uh, power, um, a lot of the focus now is on how do we, you know, take the patched up power grid and reinforce it and make it stronger for a future hurricane? How do we rebuild infrastructure that is going to withstand future uh, disasters, uh, and so that's where a lot of the a lot of the recovery is going. You've been there for more than a year now. Uh, tell us how uh, Puerto Rico has changed. Let's start with the number of people that are living there now. Well, there were a lot of questions early on about how many people exactly left, you know, immediately after the storm because they just preferred to to, to ride out the the aftermath in the uh, on the mainland. Uh, and the estimates were a couple hundred thousand. There still aren't really good numbers uh, on, on that. Um, although there is a sense that a lot of the people who did leave um, have come back. Um, the population of Puerto Rico has uh, declined for a long time. And so the current population estimates, I think, are around 3.4, 3.3 to 3.4 million uh, people. 
Um, that number might have actually dipped considerably after the storm, but a lot of those people, the senses, um, are returning or have already come back. As you travel around the island, uh, because of the population decline and then people are coming back, can you describe what you see? Are there still a lot of homes that are vacant? And what's happened to the schools? There are a lot of vacant homes. And you see that especially when you're driving um, through Puerto Rico's central mountain range, which um, which takes up a big part of the geography of Puerto Rico. And so you have a lot of communities up in the mountains in these rural communities um, where people have left and they're just, you know, house after house after house, empty, uh, empty and abandoned. Uh, and, you know, in part because of the population decline, the, the, the education department has closed hundreds of schools over the last couple of years. Most recently, over the summer, it closed about 250, 260 schools. Uh, a lot of them were in rural communities. And so, uh, and so now you have these, these abandoned uh, uh, elementary and high school campuses. Um, and, and what that's doing is it's also accelerating a shift in, in where people live and how people live and, and the decisions that people are having to make about where to live in order to get their kids to school. So I've interviewed families who've said, you know, we used to live here in the mountains, but the closure of our school has forced us to move into the city or closer to the city. Or if, if we can't afford that, then we have to walk for five hours to get our, our student uh, to school every day round trip. Uh, what has that done to, uh, for the Puerto Ricans that uh, have stayed, uh, what has that done to their spirit? Are they <clears throat> optimistic about the future? It's, it's hard to sort of generalize, I think, but, you know, there is a sense that things have improved. No matter where you live, things have improved at least somewhat. In some places, things have improved a lot more than they have in other places. So in the city, in middle-class neighborhoods, um, in wealthy neighborhoods, you know, people feel like, okay, we're a little bit back on our feet now. We're sort of trying to move forward and, and get and resume sort of more of a normal life. In working class neighborhoods, in the mountains, in, in rural communities, you know, you still see a lot of damage. A lot of people, again, who don't have roofs can't really move on and can't feel optimistic when it leaks uh, into their house every time it rains, right? And, and I think it's sort of more broadly, there are, no matter who you're talking to, whether you're rich or poor or middle class or whatever, you know, the, the, the traumas of Hurricane Maria are still there because the reminders are everywhere because the, the recovery has has been so sort of halting, you know. Uh, and so people often talk about the before and the after Maria. And it, it's just, it, it, you know, even the language has changed because the hurricane became sort of a reference point for life. Uh, at the six-month mark, you spoke with Connecticut Public Radio, uh, and you told our Morning Edition host, uh, quote, we're hearing about a lot of families who are being denied repair grants from FEMA, one of the reasons that so much of the housing in Puerto Rico is informal. Adrian, can you explain more what that means and uh, what has been done uh, since that six-month mark to, to make the housing more formal? Right. So, you know, when when we talk about informal housing, what, what we're talking about is the fact that like more than 50 percent of, of, of the housing stock, according to the housing department here, um, was built without legal paperwork. I mean, without title, you know, and so in many communities, you have communities that began as sort of squatter communities that over the course of time sort of took on the trappings of a formal planned community because power arrived and the sewer system arrived, even though technically most of the people there didn't even have the legal paperwork, the legal title to their homes. And in other places, you just have families who, you know, maybe there's a family that owned a plot of land uh, and the parents told the son or the daughter, build your house on my parcel, you know. But it was done again informally without going through the sort of the proper channels uh, uh, of government to register the house and, and get title for it. And so what that did was that it created 
um, a lot of sort of bureaucratic headaches for people trying to then get help from the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, after the hurricane. And a lot of people still never qualified for, for help to reconstruct uh, their homes. Uh, and that's why you still see so many houses across the island with those uh, iconic blue tarps uh, draped over their over their roofs. There have been a number of different programs to try to help people, but they haven't reached everyone. And so the next phase is that the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development is pledged $20 billion to Puerto Rico for longer-term reconstruction. A lot of that is going to go toward helping people who still need to repair their homes. Uh, although that is still a process that's that's in, in sort of initial phases, and it's unclear exactly when that work is going to begin. This is where we live. Uh, we're speaking with Adrian Florido, a reporter covering Puerto Rico for NPR's National Desk. Uh, what started as a, a short assignment turned into a more than one year as Adrian has traveled around the island, uh, not just looking at the impact of Hurricane Maria, but also stories about the people of Puerto Rico. And I wanted to ask you more about that, Adrian, uh, because there's this narrative that since the storm, obviously it's important to talk about a storm recovery and what's being done to get power restored. Uh, but I'm curious about um, how you navigated talking uh, to Puerto Ricans about their culture and what mainland uh, should know about them. The, the the question of sort of identity and the relationship that Puerto Rico has uh, with the United States is always present and often for sort of front of mind for people here because there is um, a sense that Puerto Rico, because it is a U.S. territory um, and not a state and does not have voting representation in Congress, for example, is not treated uh, fairly or, or, um, or in the same way that a state uh, recovering from a, a natural disaster uh, would be treated. And a lot of that often sort of turns to the question of, of this sort of colonial relationship that a lot of Puerto Ricans will say that they, that they have with the mainland. Um, and, and so, you know, it's, it's the sort of thing that informs almost every conversation you have here, whether you're talking about the reconstruction or the fact that there is now this federal oversight board appointed by Congress to take control of Puerto Rico's troubled finances and implement all kinds of austerity measures. You know, the things that people feel are going to happen as a result are that, you know, if you're closing schools, if you're privatizing public services, if you're potentially selling off beaches, that all these things that sort of make up a part of what it means to be Puerto Rican, you know, um, access to an education, access to your beautiful public beach, you know, that, that you start to change sort of the fundamental sort of identity of, of, of what it means to be from and live in Puerto Rico and feel like you have ownership over uh, the territory and over your island um, and, and, and power to sort of make decisions for yourself as opposed to have them imposed from, from on high. Um, and that, that's a really complicated and nuanced conversation that this happens here all the time that people on the, on the mainland in the States aren't as tuned into, but, but I think should be because because um, it informs so much of, of, of how people feel about both the recovery and sort of more broadly the relationship with the U.S. Uh, there, Puerto Rico has representatives in Congress, yet they have no vote. I'm wondering if you could talk about uh, that uh, impact when we think about the latest story you did related to the farm bill and how it's going to impact uh, something uh, that Puerto Ricans have of long participated in, and that's cockfighting. Yeah, cockfighting is a, is a centuries-old uh, tradition here in Puerto Rico. It, it's, it's, it's such a big part of life for, for a lot of people here. Eight years ago, the, the legislature um, of Puerto Rico declared it the national sport. But um, animal rights activists, especially on the mainland and to a certain extent here um, in, in Puerto Rico, have been pushing for, for a ban. And so uh, the farm bill that was uh, approved last week by Congress 
uh, and sent to the president for his signature, included a provision that will ban it in the U.S. territories, including Puerto Rico. And it's uh, set to take effect in a year. Puerto Rico has almost 80 formal cockfighting arenas where people go to participate in this activity. Um, and they're all going to close, likely. You know, a lot of people will likely lose their, their jobs. Close to 30,000 people are, are apparently employed in some form or fashion sort of related to the, to the, to the cockfighting industry. People um, are upset here, especially those who are involved in the industry. There are also people who feel like it was time for this ban because they consider it animal cruelty. But there's no question that regardless, it's, it's an important part of, of Puerto Rican society, uh, something that's going to change because Congress decided to ban it. And one of the big you know, criticisms from especially elected officials here is that, again, because Puerto Rico does not have voting representation in Congress, well, Puerto Rico's officials really had no say. They just had to take it. I was wondering, uh, Adrian, if you could talk more about uh, how residents on the island feel about, uh, do they have faith in their government? Uh, we we can, uh, um, from your reporting and others, understand that there's a lot of uh, mistrust in how uh, mainland leaders um, may think about how Puerto Rico operates and vice versa. But I'm wondering about the leaders they have on the island. Um, do they feel that there's enough transparency? Uh, no, I don't think so. There is... Um, a lot of mistrust of, of the government here. Uh, and, you know, I think it's fair to say that to a certain extent, the government has earned a lot of that mistrust, especially after the storm, because um, it was so secretive and has been so secretive about a lot of the way the recovery has worked. You know, the, the most famous example, of course, is is in the one that got the most attention uh, up in the States, um, is what happened with the, with the death count, you know, for a long, long time. Officials here did not um, release data that journalists and researchers were seeking to try to put an official number on how many people died because of the storm, either directly or, or indirectly. And it took a lawsuit uh, from journalists to get the government to release that information. And, and to this day, the, though there was a, a commissioned report to get it arrive at an estimate, you know, we still don't know exactly how many people died or who died because of the storm. You know, the government also said, you know, a few months ago that it was ready for the next hurricane season, that that it had updated its hurricane response plan to make sure that, you know, if another storm should come, the government would be ready. But then again, after requests from journalists, um, it refused to release that response plan. Again, it took another lawsuit, and it was only in court that the government's lawyers admitted that, in fact, this hurricane response plan wasn't even complete, which is why they, they couldn't release it in full. Um, and so you have all sorts of examples where the government has sort of kept secret things that it probably shouldn't have kept secret and that contributes to this sense of, of mistrust that you, you can sort of see and hear and feel among the population. Uh, you spoke to a woman, uh, Cecile Blondet, I believe, executive director of the nonprofit Espacios Abiertos. This is what she told you. Well, well, we have been left in the dark for many years regarding many, many things. And after the hurricane, that metaphor became a reality because we were actually left in the dark for many, many months. Uh, since speaking with Cecile and others, have there been uh, any efforts uh, for the government to be more transparent? I mean, people like Cecile and other sort of local grassroots groups here are always pushing the government to be more transparent. Um, whether there have been efforts on the part of Puerto Rico's government to be more transparent, I mean, not that I've sort of seen. In fact, Cecile's organization is currently in court fighting for Puerto Rico's government to release a list of all of the companies that have received tax credits um, from the government and to get a sense of how Puerto Rico's government is spending its money. 
and the government is fighting that tooth and nail. And so it's a, it, it, it's a constant battle that journalists and researchers and the public are engaged in here to get Puerto Rico's government to release more information, and, and it will continue. Uh, speaking of Puerto Rico's uh, government, uh, the governor announcing uh, that the power grid would be privatized. How are Puerto Ricans taking that news? Uh, you know, it, it's kind of a it's kind of a mixed response. There is there is a long history of frustration with Prepa, which is the um, the publicly owned uh, utility here, because it did allow the power grid to fall into such disrepair over decades to the point where there was the total collapse after the hurricane, um, and so you know people feel like there needs to be some kind of change to ensure that people have a, a stable uh, and reliable and affordable source of electricity. Some people feel like privatization is the solution. But there are a lot of people who, though they were frustrated and have been frustrated and continue to be frustrated with the electric authority, feel like putting its assets into into private hands um, is only a recipe for, for, for disaster. And so it, it is very much a mixed response. Uh, when we think about the impact of future storms, uh, you know, how quickly uh, is Puerto Rico then going to be able to move towards privatization if they're hoping that this makes the, the grid more reliable? Well, uh, the, the governor, when he announced the privatization uh, back in, it was about a year ago now, it was in early January, said that it was going to be a, an 18-month process. Um, you know, that is not uh, going to be be met. You know, the, 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 the government is currently taking bids or recently, I believe, closed the window on bids uh, from private companies that wanted to, to take over the assets. But we don't know which companies those are. And so it seems like there is still... A, a, a long time before that happens. Uh, and uh, we had mentioned that you've been there for more than a year. I'm just wondering what your final thoughts are on Puerto Rico's future and what stories uh, still need to be told, Adrian. Well, the, the, you know, the, the recovery from the hurricane uh, is going to take a long time. The emergency phase is is generally accepted to be to be over. People generally have the basics, you know, power, water, food. But you know, many people still don't have the roofs. And so that's going to be an important part of the story going forward. You've got billions of dollars of federal money that is going to just now beginning to flow from the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development. And a big question is sort of how deeply is that money going to penetrate into communities, into the, uh, to the local level to really fix the damage that, that affected, you know, on the street level and on the, and on the block level. Um, and one of the big questions that people are concerned about is, you know, who's going to get the contracts to do all of this work? Um, is it going to be mostly mainland firms from the states who are going to sort of take a lot of that money and profit away? Um, or is it going to be companies here in Puerto Rico who uh, will be able to recirculate it and sort of stimulate the economy in a way that Puerto Rico's economy and its workers desperately need because it's in this more than decade long recession? That's another big story going forward. Um, and then there's and then there's the story, which is not directly related to the hurricane, but in in some ways will affect the future of Puerto Rico for for arguably a lot longer than than Hurricane Maria did, which is this a federal oversight board that um, Congress appointed to take control of the island's finances and, like I mentioned earlier, impose a lot of austerity measures. Uh, and a lot of people here are really worried about what that means for the future of their ability to get public services, health care, to send their kids to school, get a higher education, attend university. It's causing a lot of anxiety here and um, is going to be a story that we should keep an eye on for, for many, many years. 
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks to Adrian Florido again, a reporter who's covered Puerto Rico for an NPR's national desk for more than a year. We'll tweet out links to his recent reporting as well as WNPR's coverage of Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. You can find us at Where We Live on Twitter. Adrian, thanks so much for your time. Oh, thank you. Coming up, we hear what researchers have learned about changes to Puerto Rico's ecosystems after Hurricanes Maria and Irma. And you can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There have been plenty of stories about how Hurricane Maria has impacted Puerto Rico's residents and infrastructure. But the storm and others prior to it have also impacted the island's ecosystems. For more, joining us now is William McDowell. He's professor in the Department of Natural Resources and the Environment at the University of New Hampshire and director of the New Hampshire Water Resources Research Center. Uh, Bill, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. I understand you're part of a project at the Lucio Long-Term Ecological Research and Critical Zone Observatory. Tell us more. What is that exactly? Well, it's two uh, different but uh, tightly uh, related and cooperative projects that study the long-term dynamics of the forest, the soils, the streams, uh, the animals that live in all of those spots and how they respond to different uh, environmental drivers, different environmental events, such as hurricanes. So this was created by the National Science Foundation back in the 80s? That's correct. The uh, Long-Term Ecological Research, LTER, started in the 80s, and the Critical Zone Observatory started about 10 years ago. So you've been doing that work uh, for many years now. Why did you pick Puerto Rico for this? Well, Puerto Rico represents some really significant opportunities um, within the U.S. context. It's one of the few places where we can study tropical forests. And also as a, a volcanic island, part of an island arc, um, the uh, role that, that those islands play in global cycles of uh, materials are, uh, is important. So it's worth uh, studying from that perspective as well. Uh, many uh, listeners in Connecticut uh, often go to Puerto Rico um, for vacation, and one of the most popular sites is El Yunque National uh, Forest. Is that where most of this research is, is uh, happening? That's correct. So tell us more about um, how um, you're uh, looking at um, the changes uh, post-hurricanes. Uh, what exactly are you studying, Bill? Uh, my particular focus is on the stream chemistry and We've studied uh, that over the years with uh, uh, samples we take every week, and we analyze them in the lab and, and measure a wide variety of materials in the water, um, things that are important for the life and the health of the ecosystem and other elements that uh, describe how the uh, mountain is, is basically eroding and weathering away and, and making its way down to the ocean. Um, so we've been doing that for many years, we've noted in the past that um, nitrate concentrations um, increased after the hurricanes, and then they tend to go back down uh, reasonably quickly in uh, three to six months or so. They're headed on their way back down. Uh, with this last hurricane, however, we now have um, automated sensors in the water, so that gives us uh, additional insights into what's happening in the stream. And 
instead of going back down within the three to six months after the hurricane that we saw in the past, um, now after Maria, we see that the nitrate concentrations remain elevated a full year and longer after the hurricane. And this is uh, results we just reported in in Washington, D.C. at a national meeting. Uh, Tell us more about nitrates, what they are exactly, and why is it problematic that these levels haven't gone down, Bill? Well, nitrate is an important, uh, often the most important uh, form of a nitrogen and essential nutrient that's in water. And so it's a, a way that uh, nitrogen, uh, this essential nutrient, moves from uh, place to place, from organism to organism, from microbes uh, to trees, for example. And the nitrate, when it gets in the stream, represents two um, two things that are of fundamental interest. The first is, as it's washed downstream, um, we know from decades of past research that overall coastal ecosystems can be negatively impacted by too much nitrogen. And so on the one hand, the forest is putting nitrogen into the stream and it's washing down to the coast and it may have impacts there. Also, the nitrogen that's in the forest that just got washed down to the ocean Well, that nitrogen uh, costs a lot of energy and effort for the trees uh, and the microbes together um, to capture from the atmosphere the process of nitrogen fixation. And so now that energy that was was used to um, capture the nitrogen, that's effectively lost from the system when the nitrogen is washed downstream. So there's a big supply of nitrogen up in the forest that's accumulated over many thousands of years. But now we see that nitrogen really washing away in the form of nitrate. And so that's a potential concern for the regrowth of the forest because that would need to be replaced to uh, rebuild the the storage battery of nitrogen up there in the forest. Uh, You've been to Puerto Rico uh, many times. uh, So when we look at uh, what happened after Hurricane Maria, a lot of the crowns of the trees were gone. Uh, With this additional uh, nitrate, you're talking about impacting forest regrowth. So um, what would be growing there in the future, like different types? Uh, How would that change what the forest look like today? Well, that's a, there is a definite possibility, and we can't be sure, um, and my colleagues are, are studying that, the ones who really focus on the trees. Um, it's possible that with these changes associated with uh, multiple repeated hurricanes, three in the last 30 years instead of one in about every 60 years that we expect from the historic record, these hurricanes may um, keep knocking down and breaking uh, off branches, knocking down trees, breaking off branches uh, so much that they prevent the uh, what we think of as the typical trees uh, growing there. And, and we expect that a, a shift in the composition of the trees, especially a switch towards more um, palms that are uh, native there, they may take over from the big, dense hardwood trees. And so that's something that my colleagues are watching very closely. And, and my role is to understand how the availability of nitrogen in the form of nitrate um, is affecting that um, possible shift in the composition of the trees. 
On the phone with us is Bill McDowell, William McDowell, professor in the Department of Natural Resources and the Environment and, the, and at the University of New Hampshire and also director of the New Hampshire Water Resources Research Center. As we're talking about um, what researchers have found uh, post-Hurricane uh, Maria, uh, we were talking about uh, nitrate impacting forest regrowth. But then um, as we look at what's happening with it being washed uh, down uh, into uh, the ocean, uh, there are uh, issues with uh, dead zones, and uh, how's that impacting coral and sea life? Yes, that's the concern. At this point, we don't have any um, direct evidence. Our group doesn't study that directly, um, but we will be reaching out. We have reached out to colleagues that study the coastal processes, and we're hopeful that with uh, an assessment of the aerial imagery, uh, some of the Landsat scenes and other uh, images that are available uh, from the coastal zone, both um, before and uh, after the hurricane, that we'll be able to see whether there are any uh, changes in the uh, coastal ecosystem associated with this large input of nitrogen. And a sediment input, of course, is, is also important. Uh, Bill, I was wondering if you could uh, uh, tell us a little bit more about how you're actually testing the levels and uh, with some of uh, the advances in technology since you uh, first started to go into the rainforest back in the 80s. Is there any chance that these levels could have been higher um, even before um, uh, Hurricanes Maria and Irma? Yes, we, we do see a, um, a change in technology. As I mentioned, we've deployed um, sensors in the water that measure the nitrate concentration every 15 minutes. Um, in the past and, and today, we continue to sample every week and ship samples um, back to the uh, University of New Hampshire and, and analyze them. And so you raise a good question about whether um, we might have missed some extremes uh, in nitrate concentration from the past hurricanes. And, and we, we have not decided yet. We're currently assessing our past data um, to see if there's any hint of whether the nitrate concentrations uh, were going uh, up and down during each storm, uh, which is what we see today after Maria, um, to see whether that happened in the past. Um, but we're very sure at this point that w both our weekly samples in the old days and with our 15-minute samples um, that we currently have, uh, that the uh, nitrate concentration is... Uh, higher, a bit higher, and now it's much—it's a much more extended period of time that the nitrate concentration is elevated. So um, we're, we're quite sure that uh, Maria has had a, uh, a larger impact on stream water chemistry than, than what we've seen in the past. So what happens now, Bill? What can be done to address these high levels of nitrate? Anything? Well, that's a good question. And um, Ultimately, nothing um, can be done by, by people to uh, affect the concentration of nitrate. The forest, uh, as it regrows and the microbes and plants uh, regain some of their former abundance and their activity, they will begin to control that nitrate concentration and, and less will leave the forest. This is what we've seen from, from past research. As it uh, makes its way down um, to the coast, a little bit can be taken up by the organisms within the river itself. Um, but generally, uh, when we see this uh, loss of any materials from the landscape in what we'd call a, a non-point source, in other words, not from a, a pipe, but rather from soil processes and runoff, that with these non-point sources, 
uh, as they get delivered into the rivers, there's very little that we as a society can do to prevent them from moving uh, downstream. And so um, we really can only take a wait-and-see approach to uh, understanding whether this will be an ongoing uh, issue in the, in the months and years to come. Again, uh, you um, led this study looking at the level of nitrates increasing, uh, especially after these recent hurricanes. How does this study then inform uh, the importance of more long-term research, Bill? Well, I think this study really documents the importance of long-term research. If we had said, uh, wow, there was a hurricane in Puerto Rico, it just happened, we better go and um, you know, get people on the ground or send people down there to take samples for us, um, we wouldn't really have any basis for comparing the uh, extraordinary impacts of, of a hurricane such as Maria. So um, what we've seen in this whole uh, set of long-term ecological research projects, which ours in the Luquillo uh, Forest and the El Yunque uh, National Forest represents just one of these around the U.S., um, each of these sites is poised to document what happens as various extreme events or slow, steady changes occur. And unless we have these long-term, what we call long-term, place-based research um, sites uh, that are ongoing, we really won't be able to document um, changes in the world around us. And Bill, when are you heading back to Puerto Rico? Uh, really just in a few weeks. Um, the the first of the year, actually. We hope to uh, speak to you again about your ongoing research, but I want to thank again William McDowell, professor in the Department of Natural Resources and the Environment at the University of New Hampshire. Uh, Bill, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you very much. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to shift and check in on the growing cannabis industry in this part of the country. And there's some exciting news coming out of Yukon. We'll tell you more right after the break. You can join us, too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our northern neighbors, Massachusetts and Canada, have legalized recreational marijuana, and Connecticut Governor-elect Ned Lamont has said he'd like to explore doing the same in his first year in office. Meanwhile, the federal government may be close to legalizing hemp. What does that mean for the cannabis industry? Joining us now with an update uh, in Massachusetts is uh, Shira Schoenberg, political reporter for the Springfield Republican and MassLive.com. Shira, welcome back to our show. Thanks so much for having me. So let's talk about recreational marijuana in uh, your state. So there was a lot of uh, buzz uh, when uh, the two shops opened up. I believe it was uh, just a few weeks ago, and now there's a third? Yep. Uh, as of Saturday, there are three marijuana, three recreational marijuana stores. And the real breaking news is that we can get two more retail marijuana stores opening as early as this Friday. So by the end of the year, we'll probably have at least five stores open in the states. So, Shira, remind us again uh, where the shops are currently. I know, obviously, closest to uh, residents in Connecticut would be Northampton, but where else? Yep. So the first two are open in Northampton and in Leicester, which is in Central Mass. This past Saturday, a store opened in Salem in the eastern part of the state. And the two ones that are expected to open potentially Friday are in 
East Hampton and in Wareham. And so what has it been like so far in Leicester and Northampton? Uh, We heard there were reports of long lines. Uh, How's the business been going so far and, and how have they been impacting the towns? So I think the first week was pretty difficult for the towns. There were reports of really long lines. Um, a lot of traffic problems. Lester actually had a special meeting where the residents came and really complained about the traffic conditions. Um, but I think since then, things have gotten a lot better. Um, Netta, which is the, the uh, shop in Northampton, has said that there's some uh, hours on weekdays where there's actually no lines. Um, they started doing things like letting people reserve their marijuana online before they come. Lester has been requiring people to park a few minutes away and take a shuttle bus. So I think things have really calmed down since that first difficult week. Mm. What about um, how the, uh, a lot of the process in having a business? Uh, since uh, there were t- was talk of even legalizing recreational marijuana, uh, concerns about how banks would operate with these businesses because of the way the federal government classifies uh, marijuana? Any um, anything that's come forward with banks that are willing to do business with these mass shops? So, so far, there is one credit union. Uh, it's based in Gardner, Massachusetts, uh, that did agree to provide banking services for the recreational marijuana industry. Um, I haven't heard of any others, although that doesn't mean there aren't any. Um, but that really is a major challenge because federally chartered banks are worried that they might be breaking federal law by accepting marijuana businesses. Uh, There is a risk that the federal government could crack down, potentially seize assets, but at a minimum there's kind of administrative paperwork challenges. There's some risk. Uh, At the same time, these businesses are legitimate state-sanctioned businesses that really need banking. Um, You know, we see the the shop that opened in Salem actually is cash only and appointment only for now, um, which kind of reflects the fact that it's hard to find, for example, credit card services or debit card services for marijuana businesses. And then I had uh, mentioned in the intro uh, that hemp could be considered uh, legal soon by the federal government. Can you tell us um, how this is coming about? Sure. Um, So in Massachusetts, hemp actually was legalized at the same time as uh, marijuana in 2016. But in the federal, there's really, if there really is a patchwork of regulations around the country. And federally, growing hemp is still illegal. But that said, the farm bill that's currently on uh, President Trump's desk could actually legalize hemp um, federally. And that means that, again, every state will be allowed to regulate it in the way it wants. Um, but farmers will, for example, be able to ship get hemp seeds or ship their product across state lines. Uh, They might be able to access federal crop insurance or federal technical assistance or loan programs. Really, all the things that they can get for growing any other crops, they'll now be able to do uh, when it comes to growing hemp. So this is really uh, good news for uh, supporters of the cannabis industry. Exactly. And hemp is expected to be incredibly lucrative. I actually spoke to one uh, expert who said a farmer could make something like $150,000 an acre to grow hemp. Um, you have some of the biggest uh, companies um, in the world, you know, think people like Coca-Cola and Molson Coors, that have said publicly that they are looking at using the CBD oil, which is extracted from hemp in their products. So this is just opening up a multi-billion dollar industry for the, com- for the country. I want to thank uh, Shira Schoenberg, again, political reporter for the Springfield Republican and MassLive.com for that update. Uh, Shira, always a pleasure. Thank you.
you very much. Good to talk to you. This is where we live. Now, we know Connecticut already permits medical marijuana dispensaries, and with the potential for recreational marijuana, there's a need to educate people on the correct way to grow pot for these purposes that doesn't rely on basement operations. It turns out the University of Connecticut will be one of the first universities in the country to offer students the chance to learn the science behind cannabis horticulture. For more, joining me in studio is Jerry Berkowitz, who's a professor of plant science at UConn. Jerry, welcome to our show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here and excited. So tell us about this course. What is it called and uh, where did the idea come from? Well, the course is entitled Cannabis Horticulture from Seed to Harvest. Uh, I'm developing the course with uh, Matt DeBacco, who uh, has a plant pathology uh, graduate degree and consults with the cannabis uh, industry in Connecticut. Uh, the course evolved from uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, I took, I worked hard to try to fill, uh, fulfill all the hurdles to get an undergraduate class to visit a Connecticut grow facility of uh, m- medical marijuana. And when I took the students there, there were several, we all had our eyes fascinated. We were all fascinated. And one of the biggest things that we learned was that the CEO and the owners of the facility were saying, we hire our head growers from the basement. Uh, that's where we get people who uh, grow marijuana is people who were growing it in their basements. So first of all, um, there's jobs. Second of all, there's knowledge. Third of all, there's scholarship. Uh, in particular, in the cannabis industry, there's so much that's available for sale that isn't vetted for, and isn't based on peer-reviewed science. And since the federal government hasn't uh, provided funding, and since it's been sort of a dark room, there's so much scholarship that needs to happen. So the industry is just as interested in forming ties with universities as the students are in working. So I ended up getting uh, some grant money from the GROW facilities, which overcame the problem of having no federal funding. Uh, for research, and as soon as I started a program, I had undergraduate students tripping over themselves <laughs> to line up and do projects. I understand the course will be offered in the spring, and it's in one of the largest lecture halls on campus, 400 seats? So we uh, <clears throat> we developed uh, the idea of the course, wanted to open it up to all uh, students, no prerequisites, and we wanted to teach it as an introductory course. And yes, uh, as soon as we offered it, it got uh, filled. We increased uh, the lecture hall size until we were at the largest lecture hall at the university. We have 400 students enrolled and many, many interesting people outside the university who also want to uh, take it because it's the first course about horticulture. Uh, growing marijuana that to be offered at a university. You mentioned that there's a lot of jobs attached to this growing industry, and that's uh, uh, primarily why UConn was interested in this course. But when you think about, um, you know, teaching uh, people like how uh, cannabis is grown, so not just uh, horticulture degrees, but what other kinds of of people are these companies looking sure. for to hire? Well, <clears throat> whether it's Massachusetts, California, or Connecticut. 
all flowers, all product has to be tested. Every single, everything coming out of any grow facility has to be checked for THC and CBD levels. That has to be certified. Pesticide residues in California, the biggest rejection from the state program is from pesticide residues, uh, human pathogens. So there's a lot of testing. So we have state-certified labs. Those labs, uh, we I have students interning at where they're looking at HPLC analysis of the cannabinoids and trying to improve them. So we have uh, molecular and cell biology and chemistry students uh, working with the analytical industry. We have grow facilities hiring horticulturalists, but there's many uh, products generated from cannabis with CBD and THC. So there's extractions. Every, every one of the grow facilities has the challenge of extractions. In every state, there's different laws. For example, for a long time in Connecticut, you couldn't use organic solvents. So the companies had to use what's called supercritical CO2 extractions. There's engineering, there's chemistry, there's allied health, there's horticulture, there, there's expertise you could imagine where we could have a whole program to support the industry. I'm talking with Jerry Berkowitz, uh, professor of plant science at UConn. As we're hearing about this new course being offered at UConn in the spring, horticulture of cannabis from seed to harvest. So uh, walk us through the class. How much time will a student uh, sit in class in the lecture hall and learn versus hands-on? And then how did you deal with uh, maybe some of the questions about you know having a, a marijuana plant before students? Sure. Well, um, We've had this issue because we've been growing cannabis in our greenhouses and our research farm since uh, 2016. Uh, your previous uh, interviewer, interviewee mentioned the new farm bill, mm -hmm. but actually the 2014 farm bill uh, under Obama, which Mitch McConnell, Senator McConnell, really put the language in both farm bills, but in 2014, there was language in the Farm Bill that allowed university scientists to begin researching hemp cannabis and not have it be categorized as a Schedule One drug if you were doing research or education. Mm -hmm. So we started growing cannabis. We had industry funding. And uh, we had to put signs up because students would be uh, taking the plants. <laughs> uh, when we uh, harvested, it smelled... Uh, awful rich in our greenhouses. Uh, so the thing is, uh, every, I'm a plant molecular biologist. Everything we're doing uh, can be done with hemp cannabis because it's the same plant just with a mutation in the THC synthase gene. So a very low level of THC. Yeah, so uh, there's a low level of THC. There's no THC, effectively no, no psychotropic uh, cannabinoids. But everything else is the same. So we're going to be uh, growing uh, ca uh, cannabis in our greenhouses. There's a lot of horticulture to cannabis. There's male and female plants. There's uh, clonal propagation. There's tissue culture. There's identifying and culling males. Males are uh, an anthema to the industry. Uh, you can buy cannabis seed mm -hmm. online for $10 a seed. That's what's called feminized, that you don't have to worry about having male plants. 
So there's so much horticulture and physiology that a student can learn. This sounds really interesting. Can I sign up? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you'll, you'll be on a waiting list. <laughs> well, before we run out of time, uh, Jerry, I'm just curious if there was any pushback about a university offering this type of class. And then is this just the beginning for UConn? Well, our dean, uh, the dean of my college, uh, College of Agriculture, Health and Natural Resources, has been remarkably supportive. We've been meeting with the vice president for research. We've been meeting... All the upper-level administration has been very supportive. In particular, for example, UConn has a Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. The heads of that center are uh, going to go make videos at grow facilities. They're going to make videos of all the horticulture we do in the, in the greenhouse so the students can really benefit. So we've had nothing but support, and it's really going to be an exciting class. We hope to take it online soon and have a university course uh, for the first time available for all the people taking online courses. One more thing I want to mention. Sorry. Quickly, Jerry. Okay. <laughs> and it's that what this is really all about is, if not at a university, where? The industry needs scholarship. Students are interested in the industry, and there's so much dark light. We need to turn the light on in the room. We need to have peer-reviewed science. We need to have scientists. It all needs to happen, and if not at UConn, where? Well, Jerry, we thank you for coming on and telling us about this uh, first-of-its-kind course, it sounds like, that a yes. university is offering again. Jerry Berkowitz, uh, professor of plant science at UConn. I understand WNPR reporter Patrick Skeha will be checking uh, out this class in the next few months. I think I'm going to try to find a way to tag along. Uh, but, okay. Jerry, thank you for your time. Very good. Good luck to you folks. Uh, today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Thanks to Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. You can learn more about the show, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.